I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Infrastructure as code is an important approach in cloud computing. Carrie Munz, director of engineering at HubSpot, explained what infrastructure as code is. Carrie also talked about leveraging multiple cloud providers and migrating more than 400 SQL databases from AWS to Google Cloud Provider. At the end, we talked about ways to evaluate the impact of the new computing environment. Carrie Munz, Director of Engineering at HubSpot, is joining us today. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adina. It's nice to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show because I came across what you're working on through a blog post that you wrote titled Infrastructure as Code, Getting the Best of Both Worlds with AWS and Google Cloud Platform. You're a director of engineering at HubSpot. Before we dive into this topic of infrastructure as code, I wanted to get some context on the product that you work on at HubSpot. Can you explain in more detail what HubSpot does? Yeah, so HubSpot is a sales, marketing, and services automation uh, platform. And for probably you have a lot of engineers who are listening to this, so they really don't know what a marketing person does. So, for example, if you run a small marketing team for a small or medium-sized business, you're typically not a tech guru. You need to be able to create, have a website with content. You want to be able to understand what is going to help you nurture and grow your business to be able to generate leads and then understand what resonates with customers and uh, how to serve them better. We create this whole platform that really combines the best of a whole lot of uh, marketing and sales tools together to make it easy for customers to analyze and generate leads and serve their customers. Can you explain in a bit more detail what the software consists of? Sure. So what that specifically is, is things like workflows for email, you know, integrations with chat, integrations with Slack, website content, forms, personalization. What that means on the back end is really under the hood, we have over 6,000 microservices that make up HubSpot. And those services help us analyze and collect and process millions of requests a day. It's really this big automation and analytics layer sitting on top of really big data stores. So those big data stores contain contacts, they contain data on workflows, customer configuration for their websites, chat data, content data, there's a whole lot of data. So it's really, if you think about it, it's this platform built on top of microservices that are built on top of big data. I see. I can give you a lot more details about you know what, what that is specifically. We can talk in more detail as, as we continue with the conversation first. I wanted to point out something that I read in this article that I mentioned earlier about infrastructure as code. So right now you gave some general context of the infrastructure. There's about 6,000 microservices and big data is under the hood. In the article, you mentioned that HubSpot has been an Amazon Web Services consumer for years, also known as AWS. AWS offers services in many areas of cloud computing. Can you mention specifically what 
areas is HubSpot using? Yeah, so specifically, like, you know, from that blog post, like what my title is, is I'm really the director of engineering for platform infrastructure at HubSpot. What that means is the infrastructure is really, you know, how are you running your services? And that that means for us on Amazon, we've been an Amazon customer for 10 years. That's EC2, EBS, S3, you know, load balancers, there's a, a whole bunch of technologies that we use. We focus very much on running our own open source software on top of those technologies because it does gives us, give us a lot of portability and flexibility. And even more, it gives us the ability to fix any code and to be able to be you know, completely in control of any kind of issues that would disrupt our service. So many people use things like DynamoDB or RDS or a lot of those sorts of services, let's say SQL or big data services that are run by Amazon. But we run those ourselves, you know, as HBase or MySQL on top of EC2 directly. And then for GCP, we're using the Google Compute, which is really the equivalent. What is the reason why you mentioned you run those services yourself instead of leveraging solutions, I don't know, from AWS. Yeah, so this has been one of those things for us. We're always rethinking build versus buy. And for HubSpot, we were looking, HubSpot offers a lot of free tools. And so along with running free tools, you need to run at a very, very low cost. And so one of the things that my team is in charge of is like keeping the free and freemium. So we make it easy for our customers to try HubSpot. We make it easy for very small companies to be able to run their entire businesses on our free stack, our free software. But to be able to do that, if you have to pay an extra 30% for the overhead of running on top of Amazon services or Google services, you know, that starts to add up when you're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. But for us, the real reason, because we made that choice many years ago, because there is a high overhead. You have to have experts at running and writing a lot of automation to keep the services at four nines and very highly reliable. For us, it was really reliability because back in the day, you know, HubSpot has been running in Amazon for 10 years, RDS was not reliable. There were a lot of services that were just not reliable. And we, you know, as engineers, would just be so frustrated having to wait on a phone call for someone else to fix something that we knew we could be able to fix ourselves. So we actually made the investment and built up great teams to be able to automate around those problems. And it has paid off for us handsomely. So it is you know, not a choice I think that people would necessarily make today. If they were going to be starting a small company, they would just naturally use one of those services that already exist inside of Amazon or inside of Google. But for us, we've built up a lot of expertise in automation. And this has, you know, saved us millions. And it gives us the ability to be very flexible with our infrastructure to be able to move to GCP or run our workloads in a very highly elastic way a very customized way. I see. You mentioned one of the main components you're using from AWS is EC2. Can you explain for those that aren't familiar with this? Sure. EC2 stands for Elastic Compute Engine. And really what that is, it's a server running in the cloud. 
<clears throat> so I can uh, the way that I like to explain it is back in the early 90s, you know, I was an engineer at a company called FTP Software and I was working on a TCP/IP stack for DOS and Windows. This was way back in the day. To test any of my changes, I would have to, you know, set up another computer under my desk with a new version of the operating system or another version of the operating system on it and load my software on that. It's a slow, horrible process and you're limited by the number of servers you can put under your desk or the number of servers you can physically have in a, a data center. And so today, you know, now it's just fantastic for me 20 years later, it's really just an API call and I suddenly have a new server just magically in the cloud. I can start typing Linux commands. I can do whatever I want there. And it's really that you just have this uh, pretty much infinite capacity to be able to expand your workloads, you know, at any time or be able to throw them away again, you know, after your experiments or if you don't need that high level of burst capacity, you know, you can just get rid of it instead of having to pay for these very expensive machines sitting in your own data center. Or for me, it was literally sitting under my desk. I had like dozens and dozens of machines to test. Are there other aspects similar to this that you look back and see how far we've come along in terms of developing software? Like you mentioned, you were writing software in the 90s. Is there anything else that stands out? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Because so, you know, I skipped a huge long journey and that was pre-internet days. So, you know, I was working on TCP by PIP stacks. And so even just loading software, testing software, having, you know, open source available for download anywhere, like just the how fast and how rapid you can make changes and experiment. Like we learn so much faster from each other now because for us, it was a lot harder to be sharing things. Now it's just so much easier to share. But for me, like that journey was from machines sitting under my desk with me loading disks into them to then virtual machines, which then became like, oh, I could have actually two different versions of the operating system or four on my own one machine. Like that to me was revolutionary. Then when, you know, you move to the cloud, it's just the, the rate of innovation and the scale. Like there was no way, you know, a, a thing like HBase could exist back in those days. Now you can just combine so many machines together to be able to process big, huge, giant data sets. Like that was just not a possibility back in those days. So I just love it. Like the change is so fast and it's one of those like, I can't wait for the next 10 years, the next 20 years, like the rate that it has changed already, it's just going to be explosive. So I have a daughter who's 17 years old and she loves Java programming and I just keep imagining the kinds of things she's going to be able to do or the things she can do now that I couldn't do back in the day. Like it's just, you know, it gets me so excited. It's like, that's why I love being an engineer. Exactly. And you mentioned that you're really excited about this whole moving things to the cloud. In terms of infrastructure, what does it mean to be able to run infrastructure in the cloud? Yeah, so that, like, if you think about it as an engineer, you know, you're writing code and you can change your code, you can abstract the objects to be able to break things down in a more efficient, effective way. You know, back in my day, you couldn't do that with a computer. The computer was the computer was a computer. Now, a computer 
to me is just another object. It's just another a layer inside of, you know, everything else that we do. And so again, you can be as flexible as you can with, you know, a simple Java class. We now can just treat a, a whole computer and disk and even, you know, memory in such a, you know, a simple way. We can break it up, you know, or we can join computers together. So that's what I think of when I say infrastructure is code, it's really going from that computer under my desk, that was hardware, and no longer is it hardware, it's just another object inside of a program that you're writing. Exactly, like you said, it's easier than ever to upgrade that machine, get a machine with a better spec, you're pretty much one click away from doing that. Yeah, exactly. What I love about, you know, running in the cloud, for example, the providers, they keep upgrading the hardware. So for example, Amazon, they've released these M5D metal versions. Like my team, they pay very close attention to the types of machines that get released because what we find is, you know, we're doing 5 million builds a year. We're doing, you know, more than 10,000 deploys a week. What we find is because of this high rate, we're expecting we're going to be at least 8 million builds this year. Like the types of things that we can do, like these bare metal machines or SSDs, having access to that actually like increases what we can do, you know, 10x. It gives us this capability and boost and not for a huge change in cost. Like it lets us be very flexible to be able to keep getting more and more efficiency out of what we do at a very, very high scale through the flexibility of just changing a machine type. And adding on disk, this is my other dream, is that, you know, EBS, which is the elastic block storage, so this is network attached disk, you know, we can just upsize a disk, or if you have a, you know, computer, for example, that, that dies, its CPU fries, back in the old days, that would just be catastrophe. Today, you just take the disk, attach it to another computer, and you go on your happy, merry way, and it takes no time at all. It's just instant, and people don't even need to feel any kind of an outage, so it's magically awesome. I love it. And another highlight is that costs keep decreasing, right? It keeps getting more accessible to do these things. Yeah, exactly. And so we've found over the last few years, like we've been able to keep decreasing the amount, like the percentage we spend on COGS versus, you know, the number of customers we're able to support or the types of services that we're able to offer. We've been able to keep becoming more of more efficient. The way we have done that a few years ago, we actually used to run all of our services. So we had approximately 30 teams. They were all in charge of their own hardware, for example, their own EC2 instances. Those instances, like those servers, when I say an instance, I mean like a virtual machine or think of it just as a server, those things die or, you know, the cloud providers, they're often doing work, like they're unplugging a network cable, they're moving things around. And, you know, when you have 30 teams and they just want to be offering new features to customers and they're very focused on, on getting things done, they forget to think about, you know, automating for the fact that that machine's going to fail and go away. They may forget it and then you end up with an outage or they haven't run their backups. You know, we've abstracted all of that away by, you know, through the platform team. But what we did was instead of them running all of their services on EC2, we actually ran them all inside of Mesos. Mesos allowed us to be able to run microservices, you know, all packed together. You would take one big computer with like 96 cores and you would pack hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs and tasks and services 
onto one server and then orchestrate around failures that way and load balance like services that are taking up too much CPU or too much memory. You could move them onto another machine that you know was more idle. And so what we did, instead of being focused on one service per one machine, which can be very wasteful, we were able to pack many services together into these big giant machines and then do the orchestration ourselves. We saved millions of dollars and millions of, you know, well not millions, but a lot of man hours and headaches and to be able to make our services more reliable because we had a system to just make that so easy and take care of it for everybody. I see. I can continue with the next part of our journey because, you know. Yes, go ahead. Please do. This is super interesting. I'll keep going. <laughs> so then we learned, you know, from that Mesos journey, which was then we had gotten rid of the, the headaches everybody had with dealing with their own EC2 instances. And then more recently, and this really started about a year and a half ago, or two years ago now, we started looking at Kubernetes because Kubernetes, it's a container orchestrator. I skipped talking about what a container is, but it's another like, it's, you know, Docker is, is a container, for example, and it's a way to be able to spin up, you know, again, the concept of a machine, right, in a very lightweight way based off of just, you know, a very simple configuration file. And it makes it, so Kubernetes gives us a way to be able to orchestrate a whole lot of machines, very, very small machines together again on one big server. We're always packing a lot of resources together. So we started looking at Kubernetes as a way to do this, what we had done for our microservices with Mesos. We wanted to do the same for all of our data stores. So for HBase, for SQL, for Elasticsearch, for Kafka, like we have, you know, millions of requests per second. All of those though have to run on EC2 because Mesos isn't great at handling, you know, stateful workloads like that. But what we found was, you know, especially with SQL at the time, we had 400 SQL clusters. These things just grow like mushrooms here at HubSpot. Sometimes my joke is, I don't think that the engineers know the difference between a table and a database. And so they will just be creating another database for a new feature that they're at creating, which is absolutely fine. But you know, with each database, you need high availability. You need three copies of the data in different availability zones to make sure if any machine dies or if a data center itself disappears that the data doesn't disappear because there's another copy of it somewhere else. So stop me if I'm monologuing because I love this stuff yeah. too much and so I can definitely go way too far. Well, I want to focus on some of the things that you mentioned. So you're talking about how you're using Mesos and eventually you start incorporating Kubernetes and containers. We did several shows on these concepts that the listeners can refer if they want more detailed explanations on this. Now you're bringing up the SQL databases and SQL clusters. In that article that I was talking about earlier, that's about getting the best of both worlds with AWS and Google Cloud Platform, you talk about how a migration started with the more than 400 MySQL databases. What was the reason for beginning a migration with the databases? Yeah, so we began that migration because the business wanted to lean very heavily into our supporting our German customers. And so we wanted to open a data center and 
Frankfurt or in Germany to be able to support our international expansion. And at the time when we are looking at, because for HubSpot, we run all of our infrastructure in Amazon in one region. And so at the time, this is in multiple data centers, but in one region. So at the time we were looking at what would it take to be able to run all of HubSpot now in you know a duplicated version in Europe. And one of the first things that we looked at was managing more than 400 clusters because we were looking at repeating the whole infrastructure. Managing 400 clusters, the way that we were doing it was never going to scale. You know, we really were treating SQL clusters as pets, not cattle. Have you ever heard of the expression infrastructure, you know, when you have things that you treat as pets, not cattle? Yes, I've heard that expression. But for those that aren't familiar with this concept, can you explain what it means? Sure. When you talk about pets versus cattle, when you're talking about uh, servers, the pets are the type of servers that you think of as your golden master. They're the ones that you protect because the data is unique or you've configured them in a very special way. And if they disappeared, you know, it's going to be a catastrophe and a nightmare. And so typically you'll have someone who's a DBA who just knows how to take care of that database and treats it very, very specially or that server. Cattle is the notion that, you know, everything is repeatable. And uh, for example, with cattle, if you shoot one in the head, another one takes its place. And so you really want to be when you're at very high scale and honestly, from the beginning, you want to be treating your servers and your databases really like cattle not like pets. So you want to be automating everything and you want everything to be checked into source code about how it's configured. And for us, we are SQL databases were really treated too much like pets. We had one person who was really in charge of those. He kind of knew each one very carefully what kind of data it was, when it would not scale, and what to do when things were scaling. And he was using something called Ansible, really from his laptop to be able to do a master-slave swap or to be able to do some kind of operations on those databases. And this is not a way to be, you know, running at such high extreme scale. And that we knew we had been very focused on the reliability and, you know, automating a lot of the other data stores because we were using them at an even higher scale and SQL was fine and very reliable. But it was that for us to be able to automate it for the future, especially looking at having multiple data centers around the world, you know, in a similar configuration that we needed to come up with a way to be able to automate that whole thing. And so we looked at Kubernetes and Vitesse. Vitesse is really a proxy layer for SQL so that you can scale SQL horizontally, just like you can HBase, to be able to handle really high requests per second rates with SQL. The problem we have here at HubSpot is, you know, if you get over like 10,000 reads or writes per second, you have to keep upsizing the EC2 instance, you know, and at a certain limit, you can't upsize anymore to get the number of IOPS that you need for the high number of requests per second. So what do you do in that case? What we've done frequently is we move workloads to HBase because HBase is designed, like for us, it, it handles 30 to 90 million requests per second at six millisecond latency. Like it's our huge workhorse. SQL though, you know, is really important across of HubSpot 
And we needed a way to be able to scale SQL infinitely, as well as automate all of those SQL clusters. We're now up to more than 600 SQL clusters, like they just keep growing and growing. So that was why we knew we were facing like this future, unmanageable future with SQL, where it wasn't going to scale and where we were, we needed to be able to automate at just really, really high level of automation to be able to support this new data center. So that was why we started that project and we have fallen in love with Kubernetes. So we have made the commitment that we're actually moving all of our data stores into Kubernetes now this year. We've, we've done quite a few already. You mentioned part of the advantage in this was to be able to scale horizontally. What does it mean to scale horizontally? Yeah, so for SQL, for example, with Vitesse, what it allows us to do is you can shard data between multiple servers. So for example, for HubSpot, a portal ID is really the key ID for a customer. And what we can do is be able to have, instead of all of our customers' data in one SQL database, let's say for avatars, for example, we can actually split that database in a really easy way, but still make simple SQL queries, but split that across many, many servers under the hood. With SQL, typically it's like one server for one database. This allows us to have multiple servers, you know, responsible for one database, but it is that it is broken up between customer. So it's a sharding layer for us. We've been mostly talking about how HubSpot has been using AWS for 10 years. I want to talk about the idea of exploring to use a different cloud provider, but not switching everything to that other cloud provider, in particular, Google Cloud Platform, which is the one you and your team ended up using. What are some of the reasons why you would want to have multiple cloud providers? Yeah, so for us, you know, it was intimidating at first thinking about that, but it was also, we have been having a lot of conversations with the Google team, specifically because, you know, HBase was really born out of Bigtable. And so there's a lot of expertise on that team. We had evaluated GCP, I believe it was about four and a half years ago. And at the time, it wasn't mature enough because we were, you know, deciding on a commitment between Amazon or Google. And, you know, we've been reading a lot about Google and their networks. Like one of the big things that attracted us to Google was this global addressable routing that they do. And their networks were just blazingly fast. And so we were excited to be able to, because we run on open source and we run in these highly orchestrated environments, we were excited to be able to try in another provider to be able to compare the differences and see, you know, can we get the best of both worlds? Can we try out ML? Are there some things that Google does better than Amazon? And so the way that we had approached our infrastructure with open source and as code and very highly automated just set us up for the ability to even be able to try with another provider. So we were very excited about that. And you're highlighting HBase as one of the important components to help improve this SQL clusters and how, how the database works. Can you explain what HBase is? Yeah, so HBase is a NoSQL database. It really works at very, very high scale on very large data sets. Like HBase doesn't work with SQL. It's that they are two different things. So you have one supports a schema and there's it's you know very easy to be able to make queries and joins across a SQL database. Like people 
know how to do that. With HBase, it is more complicated, but because it's a NoSQL database, like it, it can work at extremely high scale. The way that HubSpot balances between SQL and HBase, we think of HBase as really like the heart of HubSpot, and it is where our customers' data is. So our customers' data about you know uh, their contacts, their campaigns and things like that, that is all inside of HBase. But really their configuration data and uh, some of those kinds of things, those all live inside of SQL. So we use them for very different things. Where the two kind of intersect is really just at that level of scale. Once you have a certain workload that just goes to too high a level of scale that SQL just can't handle, that is where we would need to move things towards HBase. But then you have this problem of, you know, managing your own schemas and being able to understand the data, it gets more complicated. But we've also done a lot to be able to make that a lot easier as well. Is there a particular kind of data that's more suited for a SQL database where it's this schema and it has specific ways of doing transactions versus a, a more open-ended schema? Yeah, so if for us, it would be things like contacts. For our, cut like, like let's say HBase, which is not schema-based, you know, our customers, they'll have all sorts of attributes or all sorts of like things that matter to them about their contacts or, you know, that kind of data that it just isn't as structured. But then you have other things for SQL that, you know, lends itself to a simple where query or, you know, join across databases. It's that relational data that really makes a lot more sense in SQL. What we've found at HubSpot too is really just the familiarity, you know, for engineers, a lot of engineers, like SQL is just so accessible. And so they will default to using SQL when they probably should have started by using HBase. And we're trying to make that even easier for people so that they, they don't feel so intimidated in approaching a you know, schema-less database like that. So you're talking about starting to evaluate a different cloud provider instead of Google. In this case, Google, I mean. And you're looking at performance metrics, also the expertise that they provide, then eventually you on board in this task of starting to migrate some of your infrastructure to it. Once you invest resources and time in this, what are metrics that can be used to measure the impact of this new computing environment? How do you evaluate that it was worth making this change? Yeah, for us, we evaluated that definitely based off of the speeds, based off of the capabilities. So, you know, as I was saying, that globally addressable routing. So the network speed, the routing speed, and then also the cost was a big part of our evaluation too. One thing that we did, you know, early on once we had the EU data center running and we were we focused on, you know, five very key collection services for us. That was what we wanted to make sure that those were working first. We actually were doing, you know, request tests from points around the world. And we wanted to see how fast they would be. We would be comparing them as if they would have to go back to our AWS data center in the US and compare those same requests going to uh, Frankfurt and GCP. We actually found we had a 5x speed up in those requests. And so it was like phenomenal. Instead of going, 
you know, imagine your SSL handshake, which is a three-way handshake. Instead of that taking a three-way handshake going around the world from Japan back to the U.S., this was now being routed, those requests were being routed directly into Google's network and then directly to Frankfurt. And those were five times faster. So their networks were five times faster than the open internet. And so that already itself was just like a, a big, huge win. We were just trying to prove out the win for our European customers. And this is really for our European customers' customers. So it was like when their end users were making requests, or filling out forms or going to a website, they would see it you know, much, much faster going again, like not only inside of Europe, but inside of, you know, around Asia as well. Like it was an unexpected win, but we were, so bottom line, we were measuring network performance, you know, latency, we were measuring cost. And for us, it was a big part of like, can we automate all of this? Or is it going to be a high overhead to be able to maintain a second data center? I see. And the last thing that I want to ask you is a hotspot, has been using several open source tools to help manage the infrastructure and handle some of this migration. When do you decide on building a tool versus using an open source solution? Yeah, so for us, we will always try what exists. And then if it isn't suited to HubSpot or we need to be able to adjust the workflow, then we'll do it ourselves. Like one of the examples for, you know, our big, move to GCP and the EU data center was we have our own tool called Rainmaker, which you could think of like Terraform. We had built that before something like Terraform, which is really the way that, you know, it's it abstracts the APIs to your cloud provider for spinning up a new server, cloning it, attaching disk, setting up, you know, uh, DNS, setting up security groups. Like we had already abstracted that away because at the, this was year when, Terraform was early in its, you know, development, and it really wasn't mature enough for us. And that tool that we had built, Rainmaker, just became such a corner piece of how easy it became, like, to be able to plug GCP in just as another provider, you know, think of it as just another Java object, to be able to say, oh, I want to just be able to use GCP. Our engineers just looked at it as, oh, I want to deploy to Europe versus I want to deploy to the US. Like, it was just that simple. They didn't even have to think about anything of the fact that all the APIs were different under the hood. So for us, it was that we already had a service that worked for us. We just needed to make some changes. It's about, you know, the maturity of a tool at the time that we need it. And those are the big reasons. But we always evaluate open source because if we can, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants and contribute back to the community, we feel that that's really important and it makes us all better, you know, as companies. Exactly, because that could be another approach is you start off with the open source, but it could be that you fork that project or adapt it to your own needs. But in some cases, it is better to just build your own custom tooling. Exactly. So we've done some of that for Kubernetes. We built our own custom tooling. And then, you know, other people have come along and done it their own way in a different way. We always you know, look to see if we want to readapt to that. For something like Vitesse, we are 
contributing regularly back to that open source project. It really came out of YouTube and Google. And so we want to make sure that that's, that tool is effective for a whole lot of companies. We contributed back to Mesos as well. We're contributing to Kubernetes. Like we'll also release our own open source. But, you know, by all of us sharing together, you know, it makes us all a whole lot stronger. Like if Google hadn't shared Kubernetes, you know, we wouldn't be able to now have our future goal of having these multiple data centers, you know, all across the world in this really highly automated way. So we love open source and believe it's our duty to keep contributing back. Exactly. Now, like you mentioned earlier, now it's easier than ever. It's not like in the 90s that you just had to. Yeah. You have no excuse pretty much to be contributing and leveraging open source. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Carrie, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, this has been really fun. Thank you for inviting me.